another one of the mental content or mind content that the Buddha mentions as part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness are the seven factors of enlightenment now the seven factors of enlightenment are one set there are also often mentioned 37 factors of enlightenment but these seven contain the results within the 37 we can also see the pathway so here are the results and naturally they are calm and insight divided up into seven different factors and the instruction is to check up one's mind to see whether one of those seven is present or whether the opposite is present and thereby recognizing how clear the mind is how well it has practiced or the opposite our practice will eventually lead us to the point where these seven factors of enlightenment can become so strong that actually enlightenment is possible but on the pathway that we first go these seven factors arise and cease come and go sometimes we've got them and sometimes we haven't and we can be mighty glad if we have them sometimes the first of the seven is mindfulness and in those lists the first one and there are many of these lists the first one is the one that opens the door the others are equally important but the first one is our key and with the key we can then have the opportunity to develop the others the key to the meditative absorptions is the meditation method and not only that but also the requisites the necessary underpinnings now here we have again as a first factor mindfulness and it's a necessary underpinning for the whole pathway now we have already discussed mindfulness quite extensively in all its different foundations for them one additional thing could be said about it that the Buddha said in order to protect oneself avoid confused people that means most of them <laughs> and associate with those who have developed mindfulness well the reason for that in on all seven factors this is mentioned the avoidance of the people that do the opposite and to be in association with those who have already developed that factor to some extent or perfectly and the reason for that injunction is that we are so easily influenced even if we are not influenced to become also confused because that takes a certain mind I mean there are minds that are extremely confused and those that aren't quite that confused it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get that confused but what it does do is it creates a certain aura around the whole atmosphere which is not conducive to practice which leads to enlightenment it's as simple as that the atmosphere that we then find ourselves in with that with particularly confused people is not conducive to this kind of work and the Buddha calls it work so we should never think that he expects anyone to get these 
states of mind just by wanting them. It's work. Lots of work. And the only reason why people will undertake that work is when they have seen that it's the only kind of work that is really fruitful. The rest of the work one does, well, some of it brings money, some of it brings shelter, some of it brings uh, pleasure, but the fruit is brought by this work. So, this is an additional injunction for mindfulness to find oneself in the right kind of surrounding and atmosphere. The same thing that he said about the hindrances, to associate with wise ones, to have noble friends and noble conversation, it reoccurs over and over to watch out where one is and with whom one is, particularly with whom, of course. That's what it's all about. Other than that, we have another aspect of mindfulness which is also interesting, namely that there are, amongst the 37 factors of enlightenment, five which are called the five faculties or the five powers. Now, the faculties, the five faculties, develop into powers when we have practiced them long enough. And those five also start out with mindfulness. So maybe this will make it quite clear what needs to be practiced. Bear attention with clear comprehension because in this explanation of the factors of enlightenment, sati is, called, is mentioned in conjunction with sampanyanya, mindfulness with clear comprehension. Now this practice of mindfulness with clear comprehension is our work in daily life outside of meditation every moment and here outside of meditation it is that what needs to be done going from here to there feeling this or that having this or that mental state without doing that the teaching will not become clear it's impossible to understand the pathway, to understand what this teaching is all about if one hasn't seen it inside of oneself. It just isn't possible. It's all a very interesting psychological explanation. It has a lot of philosophy in it. It's maybe even a religion. But it doesn't mean that we've actually become imbued with it to the point where we can practice to the point of enlightenment. There is no other reason for practice. None. This is the reason, the only reason. Whether it's happening or not, that's not the question. That's the reason for practice. And if we don't see what's going on inside of ourselves, we won't have a chance to practice because we won't understand it. We can only really understand when we experience it. An intellectual agreement is the first step, but it's not enough. So mindfulness has to be practiced in a course such as it. Whether you do it afterwards or not, it doesn't really matter because whether you keep the practice going or not depends entirely upon the determi determination in the mind. But if you want to understand what the Buddha said and what I'm trying to explain, you've got to practice introspection, attention to yourself. Obviously, it's going to be forgotten here and there, but if it's only remembered here and there, that's not good enough. Naturally, forgetting here and there is quite 
normal. But the opposite is that doesn't help. The whole of the teaching becomes totally clear when one sees, sees it all happening within oneself. And then confidence arises. And all this kind of chattering in the mind, should I be doing this or that? What I usually say, well, maybe Tai Chi is better. It all disappears. It hasn't got any application to anything. Because the Buddha said, this is what's happening within you, and this is really what's happening within you. And only when we can, from experience, agree with it, then we know. So mindfulness is the first factor of the seven factors of enlightenment. It only becomes perfect when it is actually a factor of enlightenment. If it doesn't get practiced, the others won't arise either. It's the first of the five faculties which turn into the five powers. It's the seventh factor on the Noble Eightfold Path. It's a one way Ekayana, for the purification of beings. It's very interesting, but it's got to be done. And it's something to do. It's a mental factor, which we have to arouse again and again. So this doing means that we know our physical action, but we also know the arising of our mental-emotional states, we also know the arising of hindrances or their opposing factors, which are the factors of enlightenment. Because the opposite of the hindrances are always the factors of enlightenment. If we oppose, for instance, restlessness and worry, we get mindfulness. So it's either one or the other. Something arises within. Only when we sleep, then we don't know. But when we're awake, it has to become a habit. And it is a habit which is extremely helpful. Because as one knows oneself, one knows others. Whether they know themselves or not makes no difference. It's very interesting, actually. Most people don't know themselves very well. But with the mindfulness that oneself practices, the other person becomes quite clear, transparent, so to say. And whether they are in agreement with what one sees or not also doesn't make any difference. It's only the person with mindfulness that can get a mirror image. And because the mirror image exists in everybody else too, the whole thing is quite clear. And then, of course, the path in one's life also becomes a little easier. Not so many obstacles. I'm trying to urge you to practice mindfulness. I'll probably say it every day from now on. Once or twice. Three times, I think. Whether that helps or not, I don't know. But I think it's my responsibility to at least remind you and that's all one can lead a horse to water and so on no? you can't make it drink without mindfulness the whole thing falls apart now mindfulness the word itself is not indicative of what one actually does but we have now discussed it so many times it must be clear by now what one actually does it's a bare knowing and with that bare knowing then comes an understanding now the second factor of enlightenment which can also be within oneself if one pays attention is the investigation the investigation of dhammas now this has two meanings and the scholars aren't quite sure which one to use and it doesn't matter because both are correct we've got to use both 
I'm not sure whether they actually have come to that conclusion by now that one has to use both. Investigation of Dhammas means two things. The word Dhamma is extremely versatile and used in the Pali language for so many different things that it is impossible for a scholar to know which one is being meant there. It means in one instance to investigate whatever is arising, phenomena. All in, uh, uh, investigation, all the phenomena, whatever happens. And on another level it means investigation of the teaching. But here we can truthfully say that we need to do both. We have to investigate what the Buddha is teaching us so that we can then use it to investigate the Dhammas, the phenomena. So both are correct. On the deeper level, it's the investigation of a phenomenon within the three characteristics. Anicca Dukkanata. Now that has to become a habitual way of seeing oneself and the world around one. If we don't start seeing ourselves, of course, like that, we won't see the world either. So it starts with oneself. And phenomena is everything that arises within us, whether it's a mental emotional state, whether it's a mental formation, whether it's a physical action, whether it's a feeling, all these are phenomena. And to see those in the light of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, or substancelessness. Now everybody needs to, or usually does, it's not necessary to do it, but usually everybody picks out one of the three phenomena as their favorite investigation subject. The one one is interested in. If one isn't interested, if one would rather have peace and quiet or read a novel, well, obviously one isn't interested in either Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, it doesn't really make any difference. None of the three are of any interest. But if one wants to know what life is about, what oneself is about, how to get out of Dukkha, one's got to pick one of those because only one will really grip one at a certain time in one's life. Now, one may be very interested at the moment in Anicca and impermanence, and six months later, one really wants to know about Dukkha, because one happens to have it at the time. Or one doesn't have any. It doesn't matter with a reason for it. One changes very often one's approach to this. But at one time, one has one particular interest. And if one isn't interested in any of the three, well, one isn't interested in the teaching. The teaching leads to anatta the substancelessness, but any one of the three bring one to the same result. Because whatever is impermanent can't have substance, and whatever is impermanent can't be totally satisfactory. So if it's impermanent and unsatisfactory, well, where's the substance? This is a logical, rational conclusion, which doesn't help very much. But when I talk to you, that's about all I can do. The only thing that does help is a personal experience. Watch the breath being impermanent. Watch each thought being impermanent. Watch each feeling being impermanent. Watch each movement being impermanent. Watch each moment gone, completely gone and forgotten totally forgotten, nothing there anymore. With the best of memories, nobody knows what they thought about three minutes ago, usually three seconds ago, all gone. And if the mind has any objection to that, the teaching is far away. The only possibility of drawing near to the spiritual path is knowing that this impermanence is 
the law of nature to which we are subject and which we one day have to see so clearly that our whole attitude changes completely. Now, if there's any feeling in the mind, but there must be something that's permanent, and I don't really like this. I think maybe I'll look at Dukkha, and I don't like Dukkha that well either. Maybe I'll look at Anatta. Well, if I'm looking at Anatta, there can't be any non-self because I'm the one that's looking, and that ends that, that particular process. It hasn't worked. It's like um, vaccination which hasn't taken. I wouldn't be the first time. It happens often enough. The investigation of dhammas, of phenomena, means that we get interested to find out the truth. The truth which underlies all phenomena, particularly the one we call me. Because we are the exponent of dhamma, the exponent of the Buddha's teaching and the exponent of the phenomena. We are all of it, all rolled into one. But we don't have that kind of attitude towards ourselves so we have to have a look and it starts with every small and very obvious understanding of the impermanence of as I said breath, thought, feeling whatever it is we look at and when the mind then says of course it's impermanent so what else is new it also isn't happening because the mind is refusing it's refusing to get a new slant it's in its old rut now to be in a rut it feels comfortable that it isn't joyous some people much rather be comfortable than, than have joy the comfort of the old dukkha is sometimes preferred to the inner joy of recognizing it and letting go of it sometimes people that can't stand each other stay together for 40 and 50 years they prefer the old rut rather than looking at the new it's comfortable they're used to it it's happening because the mind has a habitual way of looking at things and only when one starts allowing the mind to have a more independent and more individual way of recognizing things that we can see what the Buddha taught the totally individual understanding it's never going to be a mass understanding just not possible so we may also have a kind of reluctance to see things so differently because obviously our friends and relations aren't going to see them the same way well that happens too and uh, that also can't be helped but if one has an inner urge to find the truth and there are always those people that do then this is the investigation we have to make now this investigation has several factors which are recommended by the Buddha to ensure that it works properly and a very interesting one is the first one to make a clean base it's the first injunction now that means very interesting because the Buddha so to say um, paid attention to the smallest of detail concerning people who were practicing making a clean base means being clean physically oneself and having a clean surrounding clean and tidy that's interesting isn't it in other words no clutter no mess no dirt 
very plain, straightforward, making a clean base. Now that is explained as being helpful because the senses don't contact so much then. It helps the senses to stay within and that means with or in or without meditation so that the distractions are less. Because to really investigate one of the three characteristics and come to an inner experience of them takes a great deal of concentration and a great deal of removing oneself from that mentality that I call the marketplace mentality. So therefore, everything should be clean. There shouldn't be unnecessary things to absorb one. And that cleanliness and tidiness, uh, he puts down as the first requirement. And then the balancing of one's mental factors. Now the balancing of one's mental factors concerns those five faculties which are the five, also turn into the five powers of which mindfulness is the first one. Now that balancing is very important not only for this particular factor of enlightenment but for all the following ones too. They're all included in that, the balancing, this balancing act. And this balancing act is again something that he mentions many times and it is the reason why the teaching is called the middle, middle way or the middle path. We always have to balance everything, never to go overboard one way or another particularly in one's lifestyle but also in one's mental faculties. Now these five faculties are compared to a team of horses that are pulling a cart, five horses. One is a lead horse which I've already mentioned, mindfulness. Now that can go at any speed because it leads the way. The others all have to follow. But the others, four, are two pairs. And the pairs have to be in step with each other. Otherwise, if one goes too fast and the other one's too slow, the whole cart is going to topple. This cart is, of course, our mental faculties of concentration and insight. And if we don't balance those four within us, then the whole edifice topples. And it often does. And then one has to rebalance. And this is something that only oneself can adjust and only oneself can know. That toppling of the whole edifice is very common for practitioners and meditators and it needs mindfulness to know what's happening. So the two factors which belong together and in are very necessary here now, faith and wisdom. And we can see quite clearly that these two are heart and mind. Faith is the heart, wisdom is the mind. And the word faith has, unfortunately, for all peoples who live in Christian countries, a very unfortunate connotation, namely the connotation of blind faith, which has wrought havoc with many people. And the Buddha explains it quite differently. And of course he didn't know anything about the later appearing blind faith injunction because in time he was way much earlier. He explains it like this. He says that faith is a blind giant 
who meets up with wisdom, who is a sharp-eyed cripple. And the blind giant called Faith test to the sharp-eyed cripple called Wisdom. I'm very strong, but I can't see where I'm going. You're very weak and puny, but you've got very sharp eyes. Come and ride on my shoulders. Together we'll go far. Now it is said that blind faith can move mountains. But unfortunately, being blind, it doesn't know which mountain needs moving. So the Buddha combines the two, faith and wisdom. But without faith, wisdom is an intellectual understanding which is dry and easily toppled because it's weak. It's sharp-eyed, but it's weak. And therefore, kicked from two sides, it will collapse within itself. It has to have the strength and the rock-like quality of this blind giant so that it can actually go forward. Which means the heart quality, not of sentimental love or attachment, and not of a feeling of obligation, but the heart quality of recognizing the opening which the teaching gives one as that which will make it possible to have the inner qualities which really make life worthwhile and then be able to transcend it. That is a necessity. And with a wisdom alone, it's not possible. Nobody is wise enough for it. The only thing that happens when we only use wisdom, which means that we use our intellectual qualities without our heart qualities, the only thing that happens is that we quibble. It could be like this, but it could be like that. And maybe it's this way, and maybe it's that way. And he said this, and she said that. It, there's no real anchor. Because the mind alone, without the heart, without that inner feeling of rightness, doesn't have the ability to know. It's got to have that support system of the heart. If it didn't need it, we wouldn't have it. We have to have both sides of ourselves balanced. Wisdom, the logical, rational side, very important. And we sometimes call it the male side in ourselves. Whether we have a male or female body makes no difference. And the faith side, the love side, the heart side in us, which is the feeling, the inner experience of that what we actually create within through our emotional states. If that side is alone, of course, we also don't have a balance that emotional states stay, stay alone without wisdom we are hopping along on one leg just as we would on the wisdom side because emotionalism is just as detrimental as intellectualism none of it can stand alone they have to be balanced within so that we usually call the female side in us, the feeling side, the emotional side, again quite independent of what kind of body we happen to carry around. And we all have both. But some people have developed one side more and others the other side. So whichever one is underdeveloped needs developing. So that we're constantly balancing 
we have to always balance. If we're going at it emotionally, it's got to be, there has to be more rationality, more logic in it. If we are only trying to do it logically, well, we have to get our emotions going, but of course those that are pure, love and compassion, in this case, faith is love. We can only have faith in that what we love. It's impossible to have faith in anything we don't love. And if there's no love in the for towards the search for truth within oneself, if one finds it tedious or if one finds it um, too difficult or if one can't make up one's mind which way to do it because one hasn't looked inside enough, then it becomes very difficult and usually falls apart. It usually falls apart because those two are not balanced. We usually call the Pali word for faith sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, confidence, rather than faith, because the word faith, as I said already, has such a bad connotation in our um, culture. And rightly so. Unfortunately, it's now a stigma for the poor word, which has nothing to do with that. But the word confidence substitutes quite well for it, because without confidence, the uh, uh, strength of the practice is broken. And the strength of the practice then doesn't have, if, it doesn't, if it's broken, the, the practice doesn't have any any energy in it which is actually the next factor of enlightenment and then there's no result it becomes an affair which appears like being pushed around like leaves on a tree being pushed around by the wind we constantly only look for results. Practice doesn't mean looking for results. Practice is being done for practice's sake. The results are automatic, but we may not be able to see them until they have accumulated. Because our mindfulness is weak, we don't see those subtle changes in ourselves until they have become market. So, if we are looking for results, we have no confidence, because the practice stands on its own. And also, if we are looking for results, we have expectations, which are always coupled with disappointments. But not only that, expectation is a mental factor and detracts from all practice because the practice of mindfulness, if it's coupled with expectation, it will not work. It's either mindfulness or expectation. The practice of concentration coupled with expectation can't work either, because it's either one or the other. So if we've got that in mind, confidence is lost. And of course it cannot re-arise because looking for results makes the results impossible. So we're really sort of like a cat biting its own tail, going around in circles. Either we really give ourselves, and confidence in faith means giving oneself wholeheartedly to doing it or we start thinking about it whether it's right or wrong and if we think about it maybe even wind up writing a book about it nothing is going to happen and in the end we are no further than we were at the beginning if these two factors don't come together the investigation into ourselves will also not bear fruit because without one or without the other 
it's just not possible to see clearly. The strength is lacking if we're lacking the confidence, the clarity is lacking if we're lacking the wisdom. Wisdom is a word which denotes something other than intellectualism. But in this case, it does depend on the mind activity. But wisdom arises and becomes balanced from the understood experience, which means that we first know what's going on inside of ourselves, and then we understand it. But understand it from the standpoint of anicca dukkha impermanence, dukkha, substancelessness. Because understanding that I'm angry because somebody said something nasty, that doesn't help at all. But understanding it because of the reason that I'm angry because I've got anger in within me and I'm just experiencing the second hindrance, that will help us to see that that too is impermanent and for mainly it is self-inflicted and then we can practice to get rid of self-inflicted dukkha and stop thinking it's other people-inflicted dukkha it's self-inflicted and then one day we'll see that all dukkha is self-inflicted and then we'll no longer look out there so that's the understood experience I'm angry second hindrance is arising ill will so that means I'm having dukkha, and this dukkha I've made myself. Then I know, and I've investigated it with understanding. So that's the second factor of enlightenment. There are four and five more tomorrow. <laughs> Any questions? The question is, where do these seven factors of enlightenment where are they contained within what we've already heard, right? Okay. Well, mindfulness is, is clear, no? That's obvious. And the other six are calm and insight. That's all they are. Now, this one I've just been talking about is the insight one. That's the investigation of phenomena in the sense of these three characteristics is the is the insight path which we use all these insight methods for to either see the dukkha, the impermanence, or the non non the self, non person in there. And then the uh, the energy one is the one which has, is part and parcel of both. And then comes the whole uh, path of calm. The other four are path of calm. So it's calm and insight. In, triggered through mindfulness. Is that what you had in mind? Okay. <laughs> there is nothing else except calm and insight. It doesn't matter what it's called. It doesn't matter which tradition teaches what. It's either calm or it's insight. And if it isn't either one, we can just forget about it. It's got to be either one. The final result is it's too short. <laughs> Come on. The final result is insight. 
but the necessary means is calm and calm are the jhanas and the Buddha teaches them over and over again and insight always means understanding in complete depth any one of those three characteristics as they are performed and are shown and manifested by ourselves we don't really care that the tree is impermanent and besides it's so big and strong and solid it looks totally permanent and that it's impermanent I mean we don't really care but ourselves that's inside and not with the head oh yeah I know I'm going to die so what it's not that at all we're impermanent every second every millisecond we're impermanent and that's what one needs to see and then comes the moment one day when one sees that there isn't anybody there not because one has to give up egocentricity well that's part of it but that's not the enlightenment factor one sees one day that this idea of an individual person who is somebody or something is a total myth there's nothing but a process and this is what I've been talking about when seeing the senses the contacts and what happens and this process then there's nothing to give up and nothing to annihilate and nothing to finish and nothing to do it's just a process that's all so that's insight and not with with the mind alone but with the feeling and only then is it real you see the mind is quite clever in fact it's very clever and it has so many escape routes and all the ones we've tried are nothing yet to the ones we're going to try to get out of this dreadful business of I'm not really there there are so many that we can still enter into and some of them are absurd are totally absurd but we make them quite justifiable the teaching is too old comes from India it's exotic it's Asian teacher doesn't know what it's all about it's too difficult my parents won't like it my husband doesn't like it my children don't like it I don't like being quiet it's silly to do that (laughs) innumerable and one knows them all because one can one tries them all and every time one tries a new one one sees again at the end of that escape route that nothing has changed one's just as unhappy as before nothing has changed so that's the way to get it then so the whole thing the whole teaching is very simply explained in two words or three words calm and insight that's all it what it's about samatha and vipassana or samadhi and panya which is, it's all the same now I'm German <laughs> it's all the same <laughs> what one uses the um, the teaching is divided into three parts sila samadhi and panya samadhi and panya means calm and insight panya means wisdom samadhi means concentration and samatha and vipassana means calm and insight it's all one and the same thing that's all it's about and whatever people do whether they think it's standing on their heads is going to do it or falling flat on their faces a hundred thousand times or <laughs> chanting certain words or whatever it may be if it leads to calm, fine if it leads to insight, fine it doesn't matter what one does as long as it leads to something but if it leads to nothing then it's better to stop then it's just another um, uh, distraction for the mind another escape route and it's one of those then that has as their um, as their heading spiritual and then of course the escape route looks much nicer 
if it's a, you know essential, it's rather um, one doesn't feel that good about it. You know, like stuffing oneself with ice cream or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as nice as making all these frustrations. But if it leads to calm or insight, that's fine. You know, whatever it is, if it leads to one or the other, that's it. Then it's right. But if it doesn't do either, maybe one has to try something that does. So this is the same with the seven factors of enlightenment. They have that mindfulness as their trigger, as their entry, and then that's what it's all about, calm it inside. Anything? Questions? Commentaries? Sub-commentaries? New commentaries? There's not only commentaries and sub-commentaries, there's also new commentaries. One can read it all. Yes, some of it is quite interesting, actually. Sometimes. What, what, is, what is it called? What you are making now? Ah, that's you modern, modern commentary. <laughs> <laughs> that will be one day maybe described as empty. You see, the new commentary is called NC. So this might be MC, <laughs> modern commentary. <laughs> yes. you today? Um, I developed a very severe headache this afternoon and I, it was because, I felt anyway, but because I'm why I'm mentioning it, because of the balance thing that you were talking about, there was obviously uh, too much stress in one direction. Under all circumstances when you're doing a, a course like this, do you always just let that take its own course in as much you don't go and take a headache tablet. I mean, would you never take a headache tablet under those circumstances, or would you? Um, <laughs> I, I didn't, but I, I'm just I'm thinking that maybe there would be a time when it might be better to just take a headache tablet and have a sleep for half an hour, let the headache go, away and then come back and get on with practice. So, how are you feeling now? Oh, very good. It's gone. Yes. Yeah. Well, never say never the circumstances. If you can manage to get rid of it, uh, did you do it by lying down or how did you manage to get rid of it? Eventually I went and had a hot shower and then I did walking meditation for half an hour and I went away. Well, so next time if it ever happens again you will try the same thing and then it mightn't go away and then you might try something else and it still doesn't go away, maybe you will take a headache powder. It doesn't really matter. It's much better the way you did it, of course, and taking a headache powder because that's a, a real escape route. But if one can't get going at all, well, sometimes one might have to do this as a last resort, I would say, you know, to take a headache pill, the last resort. Um, you know, if you, if you get a headache, and that is for everyone, and you know the sleeping, you can get rid of it with the sweeping. Not difficult at all. Namely, you go to the point in the head, wherever it is, or you can go to the whole head, and go down and out through the ears, if it's on the side, or if it's in the front, you go out through the mouth, and you do that ten times, and usually it's gone. Because the whole thing is a tension affair. You know, if it's nothing physical, it's a tension. And this is the opposite, this is the relaxing. So what you did also, the hot shower, and of course the walking was also the relaxing. And this might have been even quicker. You know, it's, uh, the hot shower is good anyway. But um, that might have been even quicker. So with the sweeping method, which, we, which you have done in the past with me, and um, which we have done here already, uh, headaches and such minor ills can be... Uh, fairly easily removed, especially if one is in a course and has already developed some concentration, unless the headache is due to a, um, a physical um, disability where it isn't that easily removed. But if it's tension, yes. So down and out or down and out and ten times or something like that and it usually goes. Some people, when they are very practiced in meditation, they recognize the tension which they are actually producing physically. Because the mental tension produces a pulling together physically. And you can notice that. And you're letting go then, 
making the physical relaxed, let's go for heavy medicine. So it was very good the way you did it. That's excellent. But, you know, sometimes, who knows? You know, there may be the need to do that. I just wondered mainly about the headaches, I believe, if you were taking it, um, whether it would have um, perhaps a bad effect on your meditation, in as much that if you then tried to meditate after you'd taken a headache tablet, that you would be not as aware as you should be of what you were doing. Well, to tell you the honest truth, I wouldn't have a clue. I haven't taken one in 25 years. I don't know. But it could very well have a bad effect. I really can't say. Um, but not for long. I mean, you certainly get rid of it that same day still and can do go on. There are people who who are very bothered with headaches who might have to do that. But mostly meditators don't have to do that. Mostly can get rid of it without it. But the kind of effect it has, I really can't say. I don't know. But I have some with me. And I've been carrying the same ones around <laughs> for 12 years now. I think I'm going to have to throw them away. <laughs> because I always figure with all this traveling, one of these days something horrible might happen. And I might really have to take one. <laughs> but they look terrible. I think I should throw them away. <laughs> And they're written in some language. I have no idea which it is, so I might have to show them more. <laughs> okay, anybody have anything else on, on their mind? And please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Think of a person you love very much, or if there is not such a person whom you love very much, think of an ideal that you love very much, something which opens your heart, where there is a real feeling of warmth. And then, having experienced that love for that person or the ideal, transfer the same thing to yourself. Be the giver and the recipient of that love. Think again of that person or the ideal that you love very much. Let that feeling arise. And then give the same feeling to everyone here.
Think again of the person or the ideal that you love very much. Let the feeling arise. And then give the feeling to all the people who are near and dear to you. Now give the same feeling to all your friends. If the strength of the feeling of love has faded, bring your beloved person to mind and heart again. Or your beloved ideal. And now give the same feeling that you have for your beloved person to all the people that are part of your life. People you meet here and there on your travels, on the street, in the offices, those you work with. Those you know and those you don't know. Let them all be as beloved as your beloved person. If there's anyone in your life whom you don't like very much or towards whom you're totally indifferent, let that person also have the same love as your beloved person. The heart does not discriminate. Love is love. It's the mind that makes those judgments. Let the mind be quiet. Let the heart speak. And now let that love that you have for your beloved person or for an ideal flow out of your heart like a golden stream 
that has no boundaries, that floods and fills all people's hearts with your love. Imagine those that are near to be filled with that flood of love and then further away. Gently moving further afield as far as this flood of love will reach. now look at your beloved person or your beloved ideal and be that person or ideal become one with it so that the love you have and the love you experience is all one and the same May all beings have love in their hearts. 